Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. That's some good vamping right there. So, uh, good morning. How are you? Merry Christmas to you, if nobody's uh, mentioned it yet. Uh, it is the season. You ever wonder why Christmas went the way it went? I mean, these people had been waiting and watching and anticipating literally for centuries. I mean, they were watching for all the signs. They were looking. They were, you know, testing the waters. They, they couldn't wait for God to do something significant. And then he did. And not just something significant, Messiah came. I mean, the people living in darkness saw a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a new light dawned. And God showed up. God tabernacle, the mind and character of God, the logos, the, the divine force at the center of the universe that holds all, th- holds all things together was tabernacled in human flesh and dwelt among us. And they missed it. They missed it. Do you ever wonder why it went that way? Do you ever wonder what happened to them that caused them to so miss it? And then they didn't just miss it. They took offense at it. They didn't just miss it. They were so upset by the nature and presence of this God tabernacle in human flesh that ultimately they nailed him to a cross. And do you ever just step back and go, why did Christmas go that way? Why would they not have known? Why would they not have seen? Why would they not have embraced it? Maybe it's because they're a lot like us. Or more accurately, we're a lot like them. And when God doesn't fit into our idea, or when he disturbs our cultural expectations, or when he creates space that's inconvenient for us, we just simply say, then you don't get to be God anymore. Then, then you just don't get to be in charge. You don't get to be in control. I'll just take over. I'll just do it myself. Because you're not doing it the way I had hoped or anticipated or that I wanted, not the way I wanted you to do it. So I'm not sure that they're all that different than we are. That, in fact, we probably carry some of those emotions around. Ironically, the whole idea of Christmas is that God steps into the space to clear up the confusion. That's the whole idea. And we're not celebrating this memorial. I think sometimes when we do Easter and we do Christmas, we we are memorializing something. We're harking back. We're holding nostalgically to things from the past. And there's an appropriate place for all of that in the seasons, but that's not what this is about. This is about celebrating what is, not what was. This is about people living in darkness, seeing a great light. This is about prisoners getting set free, This is about emancipating our broken hearts. This is about 
God showing up into very real circumstances of our lives. And that matters. That matters. So if I were to ask you this morning just a few diagnostic questions, you can kind of go with me on this thing. How satisfied are you with your current state of spiritual life? You can make up whatever. If a number helps you, you can make up a scale. If you want it simple, you know, poor, good, very good, excellent, I, I don't care. How would you rate your satisfaction with your current spiritual life? How satisfied are you overall with the condition of your life? How would you rate it? And then this question, do you feel today that God sees you and hears you and is interceding for you as you had hoped? Do you feel God sees you and hears you and is interceding for you as you had hoped? A few years ago, Philip Yancey wrote a book entitled Disappointment with God, and in it he says, most human beings walk around with three very pressing questions about God. We don't ask them in polite company, we don't ask them out loud, but most of us mold these over inside of our heads and inside of our hearts. Number one, is God unfair? Number two, is God silent? And number three, is God hidden? So far, it doesn't seem very Christmassy, does it? And yet, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a new light has dawned. My prayer for this Advent season is that God steps into that space with you, that God becomes the presence that is there to bind up the broken heart of and to set the captives free. Whatever that looks like in your journey and your life, that's what this is about. That's what this Christmas season symbolizes, God with us. Something very personal happening to you and to me, a possibility that maybe we haven't fully explored. Sky Jathani in his book With writes these words, Many come into Christian faith with great expectations. They've heard stories of jubilation and salvation of the power to overcome this world and experience the divine in inexpressible ways. But once inside the ancient halls of Christianity, many are disappointed. Where's the light? Where's the illumination? Our hearts seek God and the goodness and beauty and justice and peace we've been told He provides, but He often remains hidden behind the shadow cast by an evil world. My concern is that because of this, we are inoculating entire generations of people to the Christian faith. Many come with a holy desire to know God, to experience His presence in their lives, to be cared for like sheep entrusted to a meek and gentle shepherd, but this is not what they see and it is not what they experience. In fact, they may leave the church without ever seeing a beautiful and enthralling vision of life with God. The lights are never turned on to reveal the beauty that is present just behind the shadows. Instead, they're offered a substitute form of Christianity, one that cannot break through the shadows, and one that never really satisfies the deepest longings of our souls. It's kind of an abrupt start to the season of Advent. 
So I've shared this with you before, but uh, I think it's good to talk about it right now at the beginning of Advent. Uh, I don't really come prepared on a Sunday to talk to you about what I think God is saying to you. I don't know what God's saying to you. I don't know what God wants me to say to you on his behalf. I've never really figured that out. So instead, when I'm preparing to speak, I'm just trying to figure out what God's saying to me. And then I just come and share that with you. <laughs> so, uh, and what I find is, I'm the poster child of need. So, so I may preach a sermon that God has been preaching to me, and then afterwards you'll say, it was like you were talking just to me. And I'm like, no, I was talking just to me. I was letting you listen. But what's interesting to me is every Sunday it's a different person or people that say, oh, you're talking. So evidently I have all of your problems. <laughs> so I can practically talk about anything and people are out there going, yeah, yeah, I have that. <laughs> and I just say that to say as I've been writing this Advent season, which I wrapped up a couple weeks ago, it has been incredibly convicting for me. And now I would like to pass that off on you so you can deal with it for the next few weeks. A few weeks ago, we were at writing retreat, and we do that every September. We take the staff away, and we just kind of get quiet and pray about where we are as a congregation and where we believe God's leading. And, and uh, Eric McLennan handed me a book, and he said, Hey, just read this book. It's pretty powerful might be something we want to think about for Advent. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever. So, uh, so I took the book. It's a book called With. The author's name is Sky Jathani. So if you want to buy the book, we're going to make that journey through this Advent season. There'll be tons and tons of things in the book that we don't even begin to approach. But we are going to talk about the five postures of Christians. And when Jathani writes that that little paragraph, and he talks about why folks in church are sort of disgruntled and dissatisfied and how we're inoculating entire generations to Christianity. It's because often the posture within the context of the church and within our own faith is such that it cannot possibly provide what God intended for it to provide. And so we're going to explore the four postures most commonly taken by folks. And I'll just tell you right now, I do all four of them, and I feel convicted about all of them. But we're also going to talk about the fourth posture, and that is God with us. And that's so different. Today we're talking about life from God and that posture and what it looks like. Let me give you just a rundown of the four overall. We can kind of take a long view right now. Life from God. People in this category want God's blessings and gifts, but they're not particularly interested in God himself. <sighs> it's not going to be a fun advent, I can tell you that. <laughs> Life over God, where the mystery and the wonder of God is lost and abandoned in favor of proven principles that control outcomes. We're kind of looking for that, aren't we? Just teach me the Bible and the way I get what I most need. I want to control the outcomes. Life for God. The most significant life is the life where we are expected to accomplish great things for God. Life for God. Life under God. The posture sees God in simple cause and effect terms. We obey His commands and He blesses our lives and He blesses our families and He blesses our nation. 
Our primary role as followers of Jesus Christ is to determine those things of which he approves and those things of which he disapproves. And then we are to work valiantly to make sure everyone else does the things he approves of and does not do the things he disapproves of. Life under God. And then that fifth posture, which is so very different from the other four. Life with God. You will call his name Emmanuel. God with us. I want to read to you the story of Zechariah in light of those postures. And I want to see if the story resonates with anything different. As I read it again and thought about this whole process and our postures, it, it came to life for me in a whole different way. So let me read it to you, and you can give me your impression. Luke 1.5. In the time of King Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah and his wife Elizabeth, who was also a descendant of Aaron. And both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all God's laws and commands, and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. And once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside, and then... An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw it, he was startled, and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You're to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He'll never take wine or fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. And he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Now, I want you to notice with me what's going on here. So, you understand that we've been in the 400 years of silence, the intertestamental period. So, the narrative of God sort of stops flowing. We don't get any more after the, the writing of the minor prophets in the post-exilic age. We sort of bring the narrative down, and then we don't really have anything else until this opening shot, till this moment in which Gabriel appears and speaks to Zechariah. Everybody with me so far? 400 years of anticipating waiting. I always wonder, do the priests sit around and talk about that? I would think they would. You know, pastors sit around and talk about it. How's your church going? I don't know. How's your church going? Well, what's going on you? you know, and there's always one guy in the group. Everything's going great. God's just blessing me and blessing me and blessing me. He's not getting invited back. <laughs> we don't need that kind of energy in the room. We just don't need that. What's God doing? What's he saying? How's he acting? Why quiet? Why silent? What's the plan? Is he hidden? Is he unfair? Is he silent? What's going on? And then one day the priest, a priest, a priest goes to the temple. He shows up. He goes in. People are outside praying. Everybody's watching and waiting. An angel of the Lord appears to him. Gabriel. And he doesn't just appear. This is not like one of those dream visions. This is like the real deal where he's conversing with the angel. I don't know about you. I would have questions. I would have some things to say. I would be first like, what is going on? I mean, as you guys have like been on vacation for 400 years, what exactly is the plan? 
Because I don't know how 400 years passes in heaven, but down here, we're really, really, really disturbed after about a week. After about just a few days, we're like really uncomfortable, awkward. You know, we keep having faith, yada, yada, yada. We keep preaching the sermons, but we've been just kind of going, hey, anytime now. Woo! The priest is at the temple. There is a messenger from God. Bodily form. They're conversing together. <laughs> and the angel says, listen, you're going to have a... God has seen you. He's not hidden. He's not silent. He's seen you. And he's seen what's going on. And Elizabeth is going to conceive and have a child. And this child is going to be incredibly special. Delightful and joyful. Filled with the Holy Spirit from before the time he's born. And because of him, there's a whole movement going to happen. You can anticipate this, Zechariah. Something's going on. Something's happening. It's a big deal. I would think that Zechariah is in this moment thinking about the mighty movement of God. He's been anticipating the coming of Messiah. He's got to at least think. That this is a breakthrough moment in the narrative of God's work among human beings. He's got to, at least somewhere in his training, something's got to tell him, this matters. This moment matters. God's doing something brand new. This is so significant. But what does Zechariah say? How will I know that this will be true? He could have focused on what God was doing, but instead he focused on the gift that God promised him. And what does the angel say? Because you did not believe, you will be unable to speak until this comes about. See, I would have thought Zechariah would have busted out of that room because he showed up! God showed up, he did something, he said something, there was an angel, we talked. He, it, guys, it's okay. It's okay. God's alive. <laughs> I saw the angel. We talked. We chatted. But he didn't. Because now, now that he chose the gift from God rather than the message and the presence of God, he's going to be silent. He's going to be unable to speak. How heartbreaking is this? After 400 years of silence, there's finally a message and no one can tell it. No one can speak it. No one can share it. They're all surmising. What they've been doing for 400 years, they have to keep doing. I don't know. He can't talk. He must have seen a vision. Was there sacramental wine in there? I don't know. <laughs> Something happened in there. But we don't know what. And we don't know what because Zechariah is focused on the personal gift he might receive instead of what God is doing in the world. I'm so glad we're not like that. I'm so glad we do not take such a posture that our primary would, concern would be what God is doing for me instead of what God is doing for humanity in the world, in the movement of His Spirit. I'm so glad we're not like that anymore. Here's an interesting little tidbit. There's a little study that is frequently done among groups of people. It would be fun to do it in here, but it would take forever, so we can't really do it. 
But it's an ongoing study. It's been going on for a number of decades now. And this is how it works. A group of people like you are given a little worksheet, and in it you are given 24 questions. And they are 24 questions about the character of Jesus. What do you think Jesus is like? Do you think he was funny? Do you think he was an extrovert? Do you think he was an introvert? Do you think he, you know, what do you think about Jesus? 24 questions about the nature of Jesus. That little 24 questions is immediately followed with 24 questions about yourself. What are you like? What do you think about yourself? 24 questions just talking about yourself. The study finds consistently over decades, guess what? Jesus is just like us. Consistently. Who we think Jesus is, is very much reflective of who we think we are. Centuries ago, the French philosopher Voltaire said these words, If God has made us in, him, in his image, we have returned him the favor. That's kind of a disturbing thought, isn't it? Because I don't know how you feel, but, but I need God to be way better than this. I mean, I need, I need him to be, let's talk theological language, I need him to be holy other, transcendent. I don't need him to be reflective of this. In fact, I don't want him made in my image. I want to be remade in his image. And I seem to be muddling that up because I keep making him in my image. That's disturbing. And so when we kind of stop and we begin to think about what the implications of that might be, doesn't that sort of didn't inform you why Christmas went the way it did? Because we created Messiah in our own image, and then when he didn't live up to our own image, when he started to challenge us and make us uncomfortable and invite us to change things, then we had to make a decision about whether to follow this God and remake ourselves or to reject this God and find one that's more comfortable. If I were to say to you, what is it that we share in common as North Americans? What is our worldview that we most commonly share? Because I, we all know this. We all know that we don't share very much in common. Uh, you know, that we really are a diverse population and we don't agree on very much. Uh, generally, there's two sides within our culture and they're about evenly split and we fight each other all the time. That's kind of a new thing. But sociologists tell us that we do share a very common worldview that North Americans generally, maybe also Western Europeans, but North Americans very specifically share one worldview, and all of us are a product of it, and all of us have it. Anybody know what it is? Consumerism. So sociological study after sociological study says, here's the most common things about North American people. They are consumers. They are driven by consumerism, and they are programmed to be driven. Now, don't take that personally and go home, and Pastor Dave said mean things about me at church today. <laughs> we have been conditioned to become consumers, to, to live in a culture of consumerism. We could do the whole sociological study. It's really not necessary, but if you went back to the beginning of the 20th century, uh, really the late 19th century, and you talked about industrialization, uh, you would talk about shortage. So if you went back to the middle of the 19th century, there was a shortage of goods and services. There wasn't enough stuff to go around. So advertising way back in that time was like this. We have soap, which told you that the store had stuff, so go on down there and buy it. Go ahead, hook up the buggy, go to town, buy stuff, they have it. Honestly, that's what it was. 
And then industrialization came and we produced more products than we could possibly consume. And we had a problem. And the problem was how do we move all these goods? We've got these factories churning out, we have people working, and that's all good, but now we have a surplus of items, how do we do it? And so then came advertising, you need this. You really, really, your life will not be good until you get this. And that increased the ability of people to buy stuff, the desire of people to buy stuff. And then when they didn't have enough money, guess what we did? We created credit. And so today, we are a culture built around these ideas. And that's true of, of who we are and of how we're wired and of what rights. Jathani in his book writes these words, when contemporary and relatively affluent people look at God, they don't necessarily see the God revealed in the Bible or even the God presented by rational science or superstitious traditions. They come to see a divine butler, a cosmic therapist, a holy vending machine who dispenses the wares and the wisdom that they desire. It's no wonder that in extreme forms, the gospel becomes a prosperity gospel in which people are supposed to get. It's God's will that people get what they want. I heard a TV preacher say one time, I was asking God if I should buy this house. And God said clearly to me, this house, you should buy houses and houses and houses. That'll preach. That'll fill some buildings. God wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to, to not go through stuff. He wants you to be delivered. He wants all of that stuff for you. And we become consumers of God. We have a posture of life from God in which we desire things. Listen to this quote from a study about the nature of that. Following the attacks of September 11, 2001, Americans were told that refraining, refraining from buying, traveling, or continuing our materialistic lifestyle would be, quote-unquote, letting the terrorists win. That message stood in stark contrast to the one given to the United States in December of 1941. During World War II, President Roosevelt asked the citizens to ration goods that would be needed for the war effort. During that conflict, sacrifice, not consumption, was the honoring core value of the American people. That's a startling little thing to think about. A New York Times study said that you and I are exposed to 3,500 individual ads per day. As an average American consumer, 3,500. I remember when not going to the mall was good for our budget. You guys remember that time in your life? <laughs> okay, malls are places where, <laughs> where stores are gathered in a central location, in case, you, in case you've never been. <laughs> and, and, you know, you didn't know you needed stuff until you went to the mall. And then you can go walk around the mall and go, hey, I didn't know they made that. <laughs> I need it. So if you didn't go to the mall, you had a tendency to spend less money. That's like going to Target today. If you don't go to Target, you do not know how much money you can save, and you do not know that all the things you need. Amen? It, I mean, Target is the $100 store. You can't get out. They will not let you out until you have spent $100. They just are like, nope, you got to keep going. There's more bargains. you got to get three more bargains before you can leave the store. 
that, that doesn't happen to anyone else? Now, we don't have to go to the mall. We can talk about an item among ourselves at our home, and ads pop up on our phone. It shows up in our feed. And I think that's super convenient, because you just go, yep, all right, it'll be here tomorrow. Didn't really need much. 3,500 items, attacks, nuances, confrontations. Sociologists say what this creates in us is a sense of insatiability. I can't get there. I can't be satisfied. It doesn't increase personal satisfaction. We, we talked about this in depth a few months ago. We did a ser- series. We talked about the paradox of choice. You know, we think choice is the greatest expression of human freedom, but too much choice pushes us over. <laughs> and we have so much choice today <laughs> that we could barely ever be satisfied with anything. Because we always think, even when we've bought something, there's a better choice. There's always a better choice. We always could have chosen better. And so we live in this. I, I just want to make five concluding statements, and then I'm going to invite you to do something with me as we make this journey to de- together. Concluding statement number one, let's remember that we make God in our own image. I, I want to pray this week that God would help me understand that better. I don't think that's something that I can say to you on a Sunday morning and then have you just walk out and go, oh, we make God in our own image. I'd like for you just to be aware, in what ways am I doing that? Would you show me? Would you help me really understand it? And what its implications are for my own life and my own journey and my own spiritual health and my own relational health. Something's going on there. The people living in darkness saw a great light. The contrast was overwhelming. The contrast was so incredibly dramatic. If I'm making God in my own image, I'm losing the power of that contrast. And I'd like to have it back. Number two, our understanding is out of balance. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. If you who are evil know how to good gifts, how much, give good gifts, how much more does your Father in heaven ask and you'll be given, seek and you'll find? There is no doubt that the Scripture invites us to ask God to provide things in our life and in our journey. The problem is when we get it out of balance, when it becomes our primary posture. I don't really do anything else in my relationship with God except I pray about and talk about and think about things I need from God. And that is not my primary place of relationship. I'm out of balance in that process. Number three, being a consumer isn't helping. A recent study by San Diego Diego State University decided to go back to the 1930s and to look at mental health among young adults. So they reviewed 63,000 case studies of young adults who have sought help for the most pedestrian kinds of mental illness, depression and anxiety and a general dissatisfaction with life. Okay, everybody with me? 63,000 case studies dating back to the 1930s coming forward, San Diego State University, and what did the study find? ABC News did a recent uh, uh, report on the study itself, and this is what their researchers reported. The researchers found that students today feel much more isolated, misunderstood, and emotionally sensitive or unstable than in previous decades. 
In addition, young people today are more likely to be narcissistic, have poor self-control, and to say that they're worried or sad or dissatisfied with life. The research team concluded that consumerism was a major reason for this rise in mental illness. We have become a culture that focuses on material things and not on relationships. That's powerful stuff. Think about this. Then what happens when this consumerism invades our spirituality? That when it does, we can find ourselves being increasingly let down by this relationship with God because he doesn't always give us all the things we need or want. Which leads us to number four. I want comfort. When I think about wanting stuff, that's not a big deal. I think, you know, when, you know, when you're young and you're going to decide to become a pastor, I don't think you look at that and go, someday I'm getting a Ferrari. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's just not in your... You just don't think, you know what's going to be fun? When I have that big fat retirement pension waiting on me, that's what's going to be fun. You know, you just don't really, you know, you don't go into ministry thinking, woo, I need stuff. So I find, you know, when you talk about consumerism, I'm not the big, you know, I mean, I'm learning and I'm getting better at it. But, <laughs> but here's what I do want from God, comfort. And it's interesting because study after study says that what is consumerism all about? Comfort. Why do we buy stuff? To be happy. Why do we want stuff? It makes us feel good. And it does for a minute. But I want to have comfort. I don't want to go through stuff. I don't want to go, I don't want to struggle. I don't want to go through, I don't want to, you know, people say, you know what? Going through stuff makes you deep. I'd be happy to be shallow. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, wouldn't most of us trade maturity for shallowness and happiness? Just let me be blissfully happy. I don't have to be smart or deep or wise. Who cares? If I'm happy. But I want God to fix things. I want him to fix my life. I want him to fix my family. I want him to fix the world. I want him to fix the culture. I don't want to be uncomfortable. And yet, the scripture is so pointed about this. It does not hide from the fact that life is full of pain. That life is full of sorrow. It's why we need a Savior. People living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death. God didn't come to make this heaven. <laughs> he came to be with us in it. To be with us, to be with us, to be with us. And somehow, I've got to make that shift. I mean, the main character dies on a cross. And somehow, I still think God is somehow going to excuse me or let me out or find a way that I don't have to suffer. I don't have to go through stuff. That robs the gospel of its beauty. Because time and again, you know, as you walk the journey with people, as you, as you face the journey yourself and you go through difficult times, if we are living a posture of life from God, then our faith gets broken right here. Why would God let this happen? Why would God allow it? Why would God do, why God wouldn't rescue? Why would he, 
because that's not what it's about. It's about God with us, with us in it. In this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. It's not just about what's going on at the personal level. There's so much more going on up here. There's so much more that God is doing. There's so much more to the promise than I live comfortable in this life. There's so much more than that everything works out right now. There is something eternal at stake. And He's working in all of that. And right now, I have such a limited perspective, but my faith is such that even so, I'll still trust you. Even so, because my faith is not rooted in this consumerism. It's so much bigger than that. You're going to get me through it. Number five, a little consumer parable. Listen to this stylized version of a story you probably know well. And then I'll be done. Amen? You have no idea what to do at that moment. You're like, if I say amen, he's going to have his feelings hurt, and it'll be ugly, and pastor will cry. Uh, let's just look at him awkwardly. The youngest son of a millionaire determines that his father's estate is cramping his style. He decides to leave home and live a free and wild life in Las Vegas or the French Riviera or maybe the swinging resorts of Southeast Asia. But with no marketable skills, the arrogant young man wants to bankroll this independent lifestyle with his father's fortune. So before jetting off, the son empties the trust fund his father had established for him and he tells his dad to drop dead and walks out the door. Jesus used the story of the prodigal son to illustrate God's relationship with his people. The parable shows God's character through the father and our rebellion through the son. The story is a vivid illustration of the life from God posture. The son valued his father's gifts more than he valued his father. Ultimately, the son only wanted what his benevolent and wealthy father could give him, and once he possessed it, the relationship was no longer necessary, and so he walked away. You and I are invited to surrender this life from God posture. And by the way, if you're having an expectation along the way that you will not see yourself in every one of the postures, let me go ahead and break the news to you. <laughs> I have seen myself in every one of the postures, and I have found it to be terribly convicting, and I will be passing that gift to you in the Christmas season. What do you want for Christmas? I don't think I've ever asked God for a new posture for Christmas, but I am asking Him for one this year. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. I'm going to ask the band to come up. I'm asking you this week to spend five minutes a day on this one posture. Life from God. And I want to just lead you in a guided prayer here. And maybe it can serve as a guide for you as you go into this week. God, would you forgive us for making you in our own image? And more than that, in very specific days, as I take time, not just today, but every day of this week, 
Maybe I need to set a reminder. Maybe I need to set an alarm. But I'm going to take just five minutes. And every day for five minutes, I'm going to just ask you, in what way am I making you in my image? What am I missing? When I think about my overall satisfaction with my spiritual life and my overall satisfaction with life, why should it not be excellent, outstanding? Could it be because I make you in my own image? Would you guide me this week? Would you teach me some things? Some things I do that are limiting your ability to be who you are. Limiting my opportunity to see how I need to let go of some things so I can be made in your image. I want to listen to myself pray this week. I want to explore the things that seem to come up again and again and how I ask and why I'm asking. I want to become aware of my own prayer life and, and maybe it's sort of deteriorated into some kind of rote repetition. I'd like to understand how I pray and why I pray better. Will you help me to explore that this week? Would you also help me to see how I get more focused on the gifts you might give instead of simply knowing you? Simply being in relationship with you? I ask your forgiveness. And I surrender the posture of life from God to you. I know you've invited me to ask and seek, and I, I just want to hold that in a sacred balance, a way that's pleasing to you and honoring to you. And I'm going to spend this season, starting today, trying to clear my head. I won't fill up our times together with all of my own words. I want to do more listening than talking. And I'm going to grab a piece of paper. I'm going to grab a journal or something. And I'm going to write down impressions of what you're saying and what you're teaching. Because I know this. Even if I just spend five minutes a day, there'll be more going on than I can possibly remember. And if I don't somehow keep a record and make a journal, I'll, I'll forget. I'll miss something. What I desire, what I hope, what I want for Christmas is that as a result of this journey, that there's a catalog of ways in which you've joined me, in which I'm genuinely spending the season in a new posture, that what I want for Christmas is to live in the posture of life with God. So would you help me make that journey? Would you help us together? those who gather in this room at this moment, those who will come later, those who were here before, those who are joining online, would you allow all of us as your congregation to journey together into a posture that is a celebration of the beauty of this season? I pray that it would be so. We pray it in Jesus' name.
And everybody said together, amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. And in response to the word, we're going to sing these powerful words. It's all about you. It's not about us. Let's respond to the word. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.